Thanks for downloading this podcast from RNIB Connect Radio. It's time now for Ask the Pharmacist with our resident pharmacist, Elizabeth Roddick, joining us from New Life Pharmacy and actually uh, joining us from a secret location. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Simon. <laughs> uh, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Getting a bit wet here in Ireland. <laughs> you over in Ireland, yeah. Well, the thing is, it's one of those countries that's beautiful, whether it's wet or sunny, isn't it? That's why it's green. Yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> now, just because Elizabeth's away doesn't mean that we don't still look behind the medical headlines for you. And uh, we're looking at one. Now, this caused a bit of a stir. We've got a couple of uh, stories this week that cause a bit of a stir. Very hot drinks may cause cancer, but coffee doesn't, says WHO, which is the World Health Organization. Tell us about this. Yeah, the IARC, a cancer agency in the World Health Organization, had a meeting in France. And what they were doing, they were looking at substances that could cause cancer. And they claimed that according to how dangerous, they tried to class them according to how dangerous the substances could be. So to give you an example, smoking, going on a sunbed, that would be a group one hazard. Now, the group looked at over a thousand studies and coffee came out as group three in terms of causing cancer. But hot drinks, and that's interesting, that's above 65 degrees centigrade. That was group 2A, probably cancer producing in humans. And if you remember, I think it was 1991 that some research suggested that coffee drinking might cause cancer, but other researchers agreed that it was only limited evidence. And this latest research looked at 500 studies checking more than 20 different types of cancer. And they followed people who were coffee drinkers to see how many of them developed cancer. And the results didn't show convincing evidence that it was the coffee that increased the risk. They also checked a drink called Mate, M-A-T-E. This, this is a hot drink you find in South America, and it's rich in caffeine. And what they wanted to know the researchers was, was it the caffeine in the drink, or was it the fact that you take this drink very hot? And they found that it was the heat of the drink, not the caffeine, that increased the risk of cancer of the esophagus. Now, that's the tube for your food going from the throat to the stomach. So from all of this research, the conclusion is don't drink a drink that's too hot. Cups of tea, coffee, even hot water. Let it cool first. And, and although the research doesn't prove that drinking hot drinks will give you cancer, it seems sensible. If something's so hot that it's burning the tissue of your throat, then, then that's a risk in itself. So basically enjoy your coffee, but as always in moderation. And the thing is, though, I mean, how, how do you know what's 63 degrees? I, I couldn't tell you that, actually. I put my elbow in my, my coffee or something. In our baby's bath. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, it, I think you'll know yourself. What's happening is that if you find that the drink is or hot soup, for example, is burning your mouth, then what's going to happen is it's going to burn further down, and that's where the problems arise. So I think it's just that it's a common sense thing. Make sure that, that your drinks are not too hot. That's where I fall down. <laughs> Righty-ho. Well, I actually like, I have a saying, I like to have a drink at optimum drinking temperature, which is probably a bit cooler than most people, but uh, that's my favourite temperature, so maybe I'm doing something right. At You're least, very healthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, we move on to this one. Now, I thought this was a bit of a ridiculous headline, but uh, it's uh, eating Weetabix for breakfast can slash the risk of dying early from any cause. Now, does that keep you safe from getting knocked down by a bus? Good question. I don't know. This was a Harvard uh, School of Public Health and Harvard Medical School study. And the first thing to say is this is not just about Weetabix, funnily enough. It's about all whole grain foods, uh, and that's whole grain bread, rice 
one serving of a whole grain, now that's a slice of bread or an average bowl of cereal, that's about 16 grams. So an extra serving of the whole grain food reduced the death rate by approximately 10%. Uh, so the results show is that reducing white bread, for example, replacing it with whole grain food, will lessen the risk of particularly heart disease. But one factor that might make a difference to the results is that the people who eat more healthily anyway probably smoke less, drink less alcohol and exercise more. It's a package that means a balanced life and part of that is eating healthily, maybe more whole grain food. And that will reduce the risk of ill health, not just replacing some food. Hmm. So again, it's a much bigger picture then, isn't it? I think it's all about this moderation, the balanced life. Mm. But certainly, if, if you are taking a load of white uh, bread, etc., you can easily change it to whole grain. I think that's a sensible thing to do. All right, well, that's something I could work on. <laughs> Moving on to another one which is uh, proven to be quite controversial, this this story. Controversial in the way that it says that uh, it's a report that claims that there's no risk between bad cholesterol and heart disease. So we've had it wrong all these years. <laughs> this is really surprising. Simon, I mean, headlines like bad cholesterol helps you live longer. I mean, if you remember LDL, that's the low-density lipoprotein. It's the part of the cholesterol that's always been associated with an increased risk of dying from heart disease. The researchers, it was a collaborative all sorts of countries, Japan, Sweden, UK, Ireland, US, even Italy. Interestingly, four of the authors have written books against the cholesterol hypothesis and nine of them were part of the international network of cholesterol sceptics who say that animal fat is, and cholesterol, they just don't play a role in heart disease. And could the authors be biased? Mm, I don't know. I'll leave it to the listeners. So medics have for some time held the view that it's cholesterol that causes this atherosclerosis. That's the build-up of fat and plaque in the arteries. It's also thought that the risk is less important as we get older. So this research was specifically looking at the low-density lipoprotein, or the bad cholesterol. The researchers looked at a study with over 68,000 participants, and they found 90% of the individuals with low-density lipoprotein um, increased. If that increased, more people lived. That's surprising. Now, 14 out of 16 studies had a, had a lower level of death, and the remaining 12 had no link with the low-density cholesterol level. They found older adults with high of this high of this low density lipoprotein, uh, the bad cholesterol, uh, they live as long as those with low LDL or low density lipoprotein. Now the researchers reviewing the study have come back with lots of reasons to how they ended up with these results, but but the study only looked at people over sixty. They didn't look at non English language uh, individuals. So although the researchers looked at age and weight, they didn't look at other factors, the usual smoking, alcohol, use of medicines. Where were they in terms of social class? So they, they didn't prove that, that statins, for example, in one of the papers, I think it was statins are not effective. So they, these, this research did not prove that. They did give a new look at the types of cholesterol, but until we have more robust evidence, then people should continue to take the statins. And also eating a balanced diet is important. So the authorities, the medics, they're not changing the advice uh, at the moment on this low-density lipoprotein study. All right, but we should keep an eye on it for you anyway, just to see if there are any developments. Yeah. 
Moving on, um, Down syndrome can be treated with green tea. Now, this is interesting. Yeah, I remember Down syndrome. It's a genetic disorder with an extra chromosome. And people have uh, particular facial features, usually lower growth in terms of height and, and have a lower IQ. And it seemed to be European researchers involved in the study um, talked about double-blind randomised controlled trials. Now, RCTs are the gold standard of trials, and that's where people don't know whether they're taking the substance they're trying to prove if it works, or in this case, green tea, or whether they're taking a placebo, like a sugar drink. And that's called the controlled group. So it was a good study. And this type of trial is, is one of the best to prove the theory. And it was a small sample, there were only, only 84 people. Um, in terms of time, again, it was only for one year. Normally, when you have these RCTs, these trials, you follow people up to see if the theory holds years later. Now, the researchers tested the people with Down syndrome in their thinking and ability to do things with behaviour. Examples were attention, memory, ability to make decisions, use of language, and the ability to carry out normal everyday functions. And some of them also had a brain scan, an MRI scan. They then tested again in six and 12 months. And in 21 out of the 24 tests, there was no difference. But in three of the tests, the people who had taken green tea, and the substance, it's a great long, uh, it's a great long name, but in green tea, it's a long uh, chemical name, which is shortened to EGCG. The people who took those, they were found to be able to remember, recognize patterns better, and the ability to carry out everyday tasks. Um, brain scans, what they did was they showed an effect in the brain's ability to make connections. Maybe by inhibiting, there's an enzyme that seems to be present more in Down syndrome. Interesting points when they looked at the brain. Other points, such as memory or thinking, that didn't improve. So what we need from this study is we need bigger, long-running studies to see if the results can be replicated. And, but there is one word of caution, though. Too much green tea can be toxic. It could affect the heart. Different green teas, of course, when you buy them in the shop, they contain different amounts of the active ingredients. So at the moment, green tea is not being recommended, but maybe in the future, when larger studies actually show that this is an improvement, then maybe that could be, along with life training, it could be considered as a treatment for the future. So I think it's quite an exciting research. And maybe they could make it taste a little bit better? <laughs> you don't like green tea? <laughs> <laughs> Right, thanks for that, Elizabeth. Uh, another one here. UK scientists have uh, developed a blood test to help doctors pick the best drug for patients with depression. Now, you often hear this, don't you, that one person takes a drug and they have an adverse reaction to it and somebody else says, oh, it's great for me. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Simon. Uh, the King's College London researchers, um, what they were trying to look at was when you go to the doctor and you're right, and if you've got depression... If that's diagnosed, your doctor really has certain prescriptions, certain drugs they can prescribe, and they think it's the best treatment for you, usually the lowest dose with least side effects. And what the researchers were trying to do was individualise the treatment, and I think that's going to be the future of pharmaceuticals. We were going to target, give people the right medicine for you. Now, the, the blood samples were taken from patients that had not responded to the tablets researchers counted the number of it's called messenger molecules in the blood and the people were chosen from a trial comparing two types of antidepressants for a period of 12 weeks the newer antidepressants 
escitalopram, and the other one was noritriptyline. And another 68 people were using just a wider range of antidepressants. And 66-69% of patients responded to the antidepressants. But the test missed about 40% of non-responders. In other words, if you had had the treatment um, change because what they were taking was not going to be effective, then that would have been really uh, useful. About 22 to 38% of people were neither responders or non-responders. So for this group of people, a test would not have been helpful. So all in all, would the test be useful? That's what we want to find out from the research. I think it would, because right now the doctor doesn't have any knowledge, any way of knowing if the treatment is correct until you come back to the doctor and say, look, I don't feel any better. So maybe if we had larger studies, the test could be proved and, and GPs would be able to individualize the medicine for depression. And that's the thing we want to do, really make it individualized for each person. Right, and there's one here I would like to squeeze in, Elizabeth. I know time's marching on, but uh, I think it's quite important. It's one, anorexia is uh, not about a fear of getting fat, but rather a pleasure at losing weight, experts reveal. Yeah, researchers from France and Germany showed 71 women who were being treated for anorexia and 20 of their friends, 120 pictures of women who were underweight or some that were normal weight and also those that were overweight. And they wanted to know if the anorexic women, how they responded to the images and compare them with the reactions from healthy women. They did this by wearing devices that, that checked the amount of sweat, a measure of emotional excitement. That was on their hands. And their saliva was tested. There's a type of gene that's been linked to anorexia but not proved. And they looked at how many of the women carried this gene and whether that affected the results as well. Now, the women with anorexia overestimated the weight of people who were either underweight or of normal weight, and they were less happy with the thought of having a normal weight body, uh, and less happy than healthy women at the thought of having a body similar to an overweight woman's picture. They were happier. In other words, they had an increased attention and motivation towards underweight pictures. This may mean starvation behaviour. When an anorexic woman looks at an image of an underweight body, then that might mean she keeps the behaviour of eating too little. We've always thought it was a fear of putting on weight. And of course, many anorexics do think that. But this new research shows that the desire to be thin may be, be as, as important. It was a small group in the research, but I'm sure anyone involved with an anorexic would be glad to hear about anything that would help. Yeah, and if you've got any concerns with that, then, um, or with uh, perhaps uh, some of that you know, then uh, it's maybe a, a time to, to have a word with an expert about that. If you have any questions for Elizabeth uh, to do with perhaps something prescription that you're on or something you've heard, then uh, do drop me a line here, or you can get in touch with Elizabeth via her website, which is uh, all the W's dot newlifepharmacy.co.uk. And there's loads of good information on there. Elizabeth, lovely to talk with you. I hope the rain stops and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. (laughs) Thanks, Simon. For more downloads like these, visit rnibconnectradio.org.uk slash podcasts.